Welcome back to A Bit of Fun with Emily. It's me, your host, Emily. I am glad you're here. I'm only kind of here, being honest, very transparent. I was on vacation last week, had a great trip, a couple days to Walt Disney World, managed to sneak that in before the hurricane arrived, which was wonderful, went with some pals from work, some of the weirdos from work. We felt like we were winning Disney. We didn't wait more than 35 minutes for a ride. We got to ride everything we wanted, some multiple times. We went to Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween Party and got a whole bunch of candy. Perfect weather, a little hot at times, but nothing we're not used to here in Indiana. Picked up some cool souvenirs, and then we all got COVID. <laughs> so it's been a while since I did an episode where I was under the weather. My voice isn't too bad, but just know that I'm pausing every four seconds to cough. So that's where we're at. I had hoped my time off would be a little more relaxing than it was. I knew we were going to have the hustle and bustle of Disney. To me, that's relaxing because I don't have to think about anything while I'm there. They entertain me. They feed me. I get to stay at a cool place. They provide the transportation. I find it very relaxing. I don't mind crowds in that capacity. Uh, But, and I had super fun plans just around my house and relaxation after we got back, but (laughs) that did not happen. So that's where we're at. Anyway, it's October. It's officially fall and it's a season, this podcast season. I love fall. Fall's my favorite season, but it's a season I've been dreading for a while now. Yes, this is my podcast and I could have easily chosen not to explore horror movies But what would this podcast be if it wasn't challenging me, you know, just a little bit? I've decided to lean in heavily to the holidays this year, all in for the next three months, Halloween in October, Thanksgiving in November, Christmas in December, gonna go big. Uh, Maybe a little bit as a distraction, I guess. It was a long, weird, hard, heavy summer, and I'm gonna do my darndest to finish this year strong which I guess means scaring myself for, you know, the next month or so, which I hate to be, hate to be scared. So I reached out to a friend of the pod, Eric Holbrook, who is also the husband of resident weirdo and podcast guest Valerie Holbrook, who did accompany me to Disney World, because Eric loves all things horror. I mean, he's got a seriously epic collection of horror movies in his basement, and he let me borrow a few, which was very kind of him. And his brain is filled with these random trivia tidbits about classic monsters and acclaimed directors who define the genre. And I, so I left it up to Eric to build me a list with some guidelines for self-preservation because I knew this was going to be hard for me. I don't like scary movies. I don't like haunted houses. Um, I like corn mazes in the middle of the day. If I do watch a scary movie, it is at like one o'clock in the afternoon with all the lights on, even if it's super bright outside. The last horror movie I think I watched on my own was A Quiet Place. And I, again, did it at like one o'clock in the afternoon, windows open, so I could hear things outside, which was a little hard during that movie because you hear the noise. You're like, you've got to shut up or we're going to die. So those are, you know, it's an experience watching a scary movie with me. I'm just, I'm just saying. So because I love lists, I gave him a list of criteria. I asked him for a monster movie a movie that would scare the bejesus out of me. I thought I should have at least one of those. A horror slash comedy campy favorite and one of his all-time favorites. 
He sent over five suggestions, and I decided to offer up a poll on the socials for the sixth movie because I like nice round numbers. It kind of drove me crazy that I ended the Austin season at seven episodes. And then I, I'm an idiot, and I somehow managed to pick four like apparently terrifying movies for people to pick from. <laughs> So there's going to be two that scare the bejesus out of me in this season. So I just, so that's three weeks, two episodes a week, six episodes. I have to make it through three weeks of scary movies. And I feel like I can maybe, maybe do that. I wouldn't actually call today's movie scary. And so thank you, Eric, for being kind. Not all of them are super intense. I started with the monster movie, which I kind of think I should have held off, maybe put it in between some of the ones that I knew would probably scare me, but so it goes. Uh, Eric suggested Bride of Frankenstein. A little background on the film. It came out in 1935, and according to the Wikipedia, because that is my source for this, <laughs> sorry, it was the first sequel to Universal Pictures' 1931 film Frankenstein, also directed by James Whale. So, the original and sequel directed by the same person. James Whale was an English film director, theater director, and actor. It looks like horror movies seem to brought, have brought him some acclaim. He also directed 1932's The Old Dark House and 1933's The Invisible Man. I read, though, that he also directed the 1936 film version of the musical Showboat, which feels like a hard right turn. Like, that seems crazy to me. Polar opposites. It would be fascinating. Again, you know how I say I would love to sit down with some of these people that make movies. And I know Mr. Whale is not, <laughs> not around. But to talk to a current day horror director, someone who's known for horror movies, but has also done something different, it would be fascinating to talk to them about the differences in genre, how they approach storytelling differently, what the process is for that planning. I just think that would be absolute absolutely fascinating. I have like a hundred questions in the back of my head that I could sit down with someone right now to do, to talk about. Uh, he, Mr. Whale, he had a sad end to life in his late sixties. He started suffering from strokes that kind of left him without any energy and in a, in a lot of pain. He eventually sadly committed suicide less than a year later. And I, I think him in particular, as I was kind of reading all of this, maybe not in particular, but now that I know a little more about Mr. James Whale, it would have been really interesting to also sit down and talk to him. Someone from, you know, the golden era of Hollywood, what that was like, especially as a British transplant in L.A. during the time, a man who was openly gay during that time period when that wasn't really a thing. It'd just be fascinating to hear his stories and um, to learn a little more about him. I, I, I've been thinking about that a lot lately, how... How history, you know, time, I guess, time robs us of history and not all history, of course, as a student of history, that was my, you know, what I studied in my undergrad degree and I absolutely loved it. And I had a, an amazing professor who talked about this a little bit that, you know, history is really the story of people in the context of a time and how each generation you start to lose some of that history, some of the, you know, to have those conversations with people. I'm getting way off topic. I'm very sorry. But I thought about it the other night because a, a friend from work went to see Tom Jones. He was here in Indianapolis 
performing at what will always be called the Marah. It's like old National Center or something now. Um, that's a conversation for another day, how we stick, you know, the nostalgia of name even. Um, but she was talking about he's sitting on the stage. Apparently he needs a hip replacement. And so he's got a cane and he's sitting on stage through the enti- entire performance, singing, sitting down. But he starts talking about the people he used to know when he was hanging out with Elvis and they went to see Chuck Berry. And I, I, Think of men like that who have had these big lives and history and play a part in other people that had really big lives and how we're starting to lose that generation. It, it, it's sad and it's also beautiful in a way because it opens the door for new stories in a new generation. But that was way off topic. I'm very sorry. <laughs> anyway, about the Bride of Frankenstein, I came out in 1935 It said that principal photography for the movie actually started immediately after its predecessor, right after Frankenstein was done, they started the principal photography. But there were some delays with the script. When it was finally released, it received critical and popular acclaim. Everybody really liked it. And Wikipedia says that the film's reputation, quote, has grown and is now frequently considered one of the greatest sequels ever made. I'm not sure what that claim is made, but impressive if that's true. In 1998, it was selected by the Library of Congress for preservation in the U.S. National Film Registry, having been deemed, quote, culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. And I also love Off Topic how much the Library of Congress is in the news right now. Lizzo just performed with the Crystal Flute, previously owned by James Madison, which I think is beautiful on a lot of different levels that a Black woman was able to play that. Um, Just kind of, I don't know, it does amazing things to my heart. But the fact that we have something like the the Library of Congress that preserves and cares for those items as well, and then brings attention to them in the world by allowing opportunities like that, I just think it's it's absolutely beautiful. So I was really excited to hear about that. Promise, I'm not going to keep getting off topic. We're going to keep talking about the Bride of Frankenstein. The cast, for the most part, reprised roles from the original Frankenstein. Boris Karloff played the monster. Colin Clive was Henry Frankenstein. Una O'Connor played Minnie. She was a hoot. Would definitely win the award for overacting if that was, you know, awarded at the Oscars. She seemed very, very familiar to me. I kept going through her IMDb, and I I think it must be The Adventures of Robin Hood that I saw her in with Errol Flynn. She played Bess, so that has to be it, but she seemed so familiar to me. Elsa Lanchester, I guess is how you say her name, was Mary Shelley, and she also played The Monster's Bride. Totally distracted watching her throughout the movie because I know her from... A really, oh, it, it's it's horrible now, <laughs> but it's also highly entertaining. There's a, it's very problematic. Uh, but murder by death, which is kind of a clue adjacent. I mean, what well, clue followed this? So, um, kind of murder mystery with uh, Truman Capote. Actually, if you haven't seen it, I find it hilarious. I do also recognize how very problematic it is. Peter Sellers is in it, and he's playing. Um, an oriental man, which is, it's a little squidgy, but, but I kept seeing Elsa who I know from that. And it was distracting me. And Ernest Thesiger starred as Dr. Pretorius. 
The writing credits go to Mary Shelley with William Hurlbut and John L. Balderston, assigned adapted by in parentheses by their name. Unsurprisingly, I haven't seen any of their other work. <laughs> I like to go through there and be like, how do I know them? I don't. I don't know these two gentlemen. I've seen a lot of old movies, but not so many that came out in the 30s, I guess. Maybe that's something I'm going to need to go back and do at some point. Interestingly, though, when you look at John L. Balderston's IMDb, and I and I went through this a couple times because I didn't believe I was actually seeing it. The last of the Mohicans comes up, the 90, 95, 98, I can't remember when it came out, but the one with Daniel Day-Lewis, <laughs> one of my favorite movies of all time, pops up under known for for John L. Balderston, which is impossible. The man was long gone before this movie came out. It has in parentheses after the title adaptation, I'm not entirely sure what that means in this scenario, that maybe there was a really old script laying around that they that someone in the 90s picked up and kind of transformed, gleaned from. I would love to know more about that, but that is for another day because I'm not getting off topic again. Anyhow, back to the movie. Everything I read about the film was glowing reviews. I'm sure we'll talk about it more in a sec when we get into the summary and my feelings while watching because... That's the angle we're going with this go around. How is Emily feeling? <laughs> but I find I find that fascinating. I'm not saying they're wrong. I definitely don't know enough about the genre, the horror genre to judge. But it also just seemed like huge shoes to fill. Not knowing a lot about the genre, you're like, I, I don't get it. I don't understand why this is getting so much acclaim. It's not bad. It was very good and very entertaining. But I don't know... What makes it so special? What makes it stand out? Lucky for me, I did find a review from Roger Ebert. Rebert, Rebert, Ebert wrote, their quest forms, and when they say there, he's referring to Dr. Frankenstein and Dr. Pretorius, who decide to um, give Frankenstein a bride. So their quest forms the inspiration for James Wales is The Bride of Frankenstein, the best of the Frankenstein movies, a sly subversive work that smuggled shocking material past the censors by disguising it in the trappings of horror. Some movies age, others ripen. Seen today, Wales' masterpiece is more surprising than when it was made because today's audiences are more alert to its buried hints of homosexuality, necrophilia, and sacrilege but you don't have to deconstruct it to enjoy it. It's satirical, exciting, funny, and an influential masterpiece of art direction. Okay, Raj, I like the way you put words together. Unsurprising that he was so good at what he did. I, I think it, it comes down to that art direction that I don't know a lot about film direction and, and cinematography and photography and all of that, which I would love to learn more. I also worry that if I learn more, it would take some of the magic away when it comes to movies. I always said that about the Muppets, that as much as I love the Muppets, if I saw the behind the scenes of the Muppets, I think it might <laughs> crush my soul a little bit. So I, I would love to understand more about that point. And I think it might be something that I research on my own one day, which leads us to the summary and my feelings. <laughs> So the summary starts with Mary Shelley and her husband Percy and Lord Byron in a room together. They're kind of reminiscing about the popularity of the Frankenstein story, how well it's doing, how people are connecting to it. And one of the gentlemen kind of makes the, the comment of, well, I kind of wish I knew what happened next. And well, Mary's like, well, I know I, I, 
kind of planned out a sequel in my head. And so the the movie is kind of Mary Shelley retelling the sequel, telling what she believes happened after the first story, which ends with you believe that Frankenstein is um, has been killed in a, a fire at a mill because he's he killed a young girl who was picking flowers and he enjoyed sitting at the edge of the pond with her, picking the flowers, pulling off the petals and throwing them into the water. And when all the petals were gone, he thought, hey, I'll just throw her in. <laughs> That's not funny, <laughs> but it kind of is. Um, so the the villagers, the mob with their pitchforks and torches, they believe they have killed the monster, that he is dead at the bottom of this mill. And so that's where the movie part of it starts with the crowd, the mob around this mill trying to determine, is he alive or is he dead? And that's where you get that Una Una O'Connor as many. She's kind of the comic relief. She's in there making kind of wild comments and gestures. And she actually discovers that the monster is not dead. Nobody really believes her at first, but they will come to believe her as the monster starts to kind of move throughout town. Um, At the same time, you have a storyline that it's uh, Dr. Frankenstein, Henry Frankenstein. He is engaged to a woman. It's their wedding day. They believe Frankenstein has been killed by the monster He's not. How, how no one figured that out until they got him into what was kind of like a castle with his betrothed. Um, she's like, no, no, he's alive. So as Frankenstein is recuperating, he is visited by this Dr. Pretorius. Dr. Pretorius is a bit of a fan, I guess, of Frankenstein. He knows that Frankenstein created this monster that he, you know, played God in a sense and brought this creature to life. And he's like, well, I did this too. And this is the part that baffled me about the whole, the whole movie. So Dr. Pretorius, he kind of leaves the room that he's at with Frankenstein and he comes in with what looks kind of like a a little coffin. And you're like, oh goodness, did he make like a Frankenstein baby? But he did not. He starts to pull out these jars. And in these jars are Oh, how to, they're miniature people, like people shrunk down. And he said almost like he grew them. I, I didn't fully understand that part. They, they were not pieced together like a Frankenstein, mon- like Frankenstein's monster. They, um, they really were like, if you took a human and you put them in the laser of honey, I shrunk the kids and you shrunk them to a size that fits in a jar. And there's the queen and or he makes one of them a queen. And so she's sitting on the throne in the jar. And then there's a kind of lustful king who's trying to get out of his jar to get to the queen. Um, and then there's a couple others. And I just, so Pretorius is crazy. I mean, he's he's kind of a, an evil genius, but it, it was just, it was an odd visual. I mean, I guess kind of cool at the time that you have these, what appears to be these <laughs> tiny people in a jar. But um, that kind of, urges them to start to work together. And so they get it in their head that they are, they know that the monster is alive um, and they're going to create another one because Pretorius believes that he is kind of either, I can't remember if like he pulled a Frankenstein and fixed a brain or he grew a brain, but he has a brain that he thinks is going to be great and will solve some of the problems that Frankenstein had with his monsters and they're going to make, they're going to make a woman. So they um, hunt around and they they find a body. And meanwhile, the monster's kind of terrorizing town a little bit. He's misunderstood. He's not as scary as people think he is. He ends up having kind of a really 
I'm going to say sweet interaction with this gentleman who is blind. He stumbles upon this man's cottage and the man invites him in since he can't see him. He's not afraid of him. Um, and they have this really kind of sweet interaction and, and are they singing or dancing together? But then Pretorius comes in and, um, kind of convinces the monster to come with him. And so they are going to to make this bride. They're going to make the monster a wife, a woman, because apparently Pretorius really just likes to work with horny, lustful entities, like the little king that he made. So the rest of the movie is Frankenstein, Pretorius, and the monster working on the bride. And so when the bride is finally, there's lightning, a storm, just like before, the bride wakes up um, and you have the quintessential bride of Frankenstein image, again, of Elsa Lanchester, who was Mary Shelley and is also the Bride of Frankenstein standing up, her hair straight in the air, um, appears to be dark with some like gray or white streaks in it. She's got the big white gown on, her hands up, her eyes huge, and you have that cinematic moment. Um, but she is terrified of the monster. The monster then decides that they need to die together. <laughs> so the plan is to kill them, and then it's like the movie ends that end, it, it ended very abruptly, which kind of surprised me. As I mentioned, this one didn't really scare me. Um, I, I appreciated that because I actually watched this in the middle of COVID brain, which could have taken me, I feel like, a number of different directions. Could have led to some paranoia, but it didn't. So overall, I felt pretty good. I felt good, which was nice. And I think, though, I got very nostalgic, which I also decided that one day I want to do a whole season on nostalgia, just different things that kind of evoke that emotion in you. And the nostalgia comes from being a kid, that most of the horror things that we are um, shown or th that are created for kids, for the most part, are these not scary things that use these monsters that we're familiar with um, in different ways. And I think back to, and I think it was an episode or season two where I talked about the monster squad, where they specifically use all of these monsters in that way that you have kids fighting monsters, but they're monsters you're familiar with. Dracula is definitely scary. Frankenstein is not scary to me. Uh, maybe the mask a little bit. There's a grotesqueness about him, but I think being raised on young, young Frankenstein um, with the Mel Brooks, you know, musical comedy, that it he didn't scare me and he moves slower. So I feel like I could get away. Um, he's large and intimidating in that way, but I he's not, he's, not overly threatening or menacing in the way that somebody like Dracula is with the fangs and the drinking of blood. And I feel like if Frankenstein hit me, I guess there'd be a chance that I could survive. So it's not as scary to me. The mummy scares me a little bit because it's something that should be dead. Zombies don't though, which <laughs> zombies don't scare me. Most of them don't because they move so slowly, but we're going to talk about that in the next episode. Creature from the Black Lagoon, I'm just kind of thinking of all the monsters that actually were in Monster Squad. Didn't really scare me either, because um, I'm like, well, if he's in one pond, I just don't go to that pond. <laughs> and then where the werewolves do, I think. The fact that something could be human, and then their whole, not only appearance, but persona, personality, changes into this vicious 
creature that wants to kill you. They would be faster. They would have fangs and claws. Those are kind of scary too. But those were all of the things kind of going through my brain as I was watching. It wasn't fear. It also, you know, I start to think about, and this happens a lot. I, I don't necessarily put myself in the middle of a story. Um, this is a big part of the book that I'm, I'm working on as well. I have a part about this that we all kind of read and watch things differently. I'm not a imagine myself in the scenario as a character, a specific character, but more as a fly on the wall. And I think about that mob of people who rightfully so are scared and upset because one of the children in their village has been killed. So it's completely understandable. And if somebody told me, hey, this doctor, this crazy doctor put pieces of humans together to create a a living, walking, new kind of creature. Yeah, that would be terrifying. (laughs) That would be absolutely terrifying. Um, But their interactions with him and seeing how that old blind man wasn't affected. I mean, you see that kind of all on the news and in society that if, if you take away the humanity of something, then you definitely treat it much differently, which is something that I talk, think about a lot to be completely honest is in those moments when I'm scared or I'm confused, or I feel like I should be offended about something or wondering if I have offended somebody else, I try to immediately bring the humanity back into the situation. Um, really thinking about my part in it and my humanity and whoever's involved their humanity as well. And oftentimes I realize that, um, you know, the situation is often not as bad as I think, or I have misread or mislabeled something. Um, so it's, that's kind of what went through my brain that we create monsters and then we crucify them and shame on us for doing that. Shame on us. It also made me think immediately of Jurassic Park that, and I talked about that when we talked about Jurassic Park as well, a couple seasons ago when summer blockbusters that, you know, scientists, sit back and what they they get so preoccupied with whether or not they can do something they never really stop to think about whether or not they should and that's a blanket statement i i don't think that that's always completely true but i think it's it's a liability of science it's a liability of human hubris and ego to you know we want fame and we want attention and we want a legacy that people remember us by and we're so consumed by that that sometimes we don't stop to think about if what whether or not what we're doing to get that is the right thing to do so that's how i was feeling through this kind of rambly kind of odd um but overall it was an excellent choice. Thank you, Eric, for the monster movie. We will be back in the next episode with zombies. And I do have a, I had a brief love affair for a while. As you know, I get kind of obsessed with things every, you know, from time to time. And there was a short time where I was kind of obsessed with zombies, which really, truly does not make any sense. But I blame the movie Shaun of the Dead, which I'm sure we will bring up on Friday's episode, which I hope you stick around for because we're going to have a lot of fun this season. Thank you so much for listening. Really, it is so appreciated. If you haven't already, I hope you subscribe so we can keep going on this journey together. And if you've got the time, it would be awesome if you could rate and review the podcast wherever you listen, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify. That way other people can find it too. The more a podcast is rated and reviewed, the more out there it is. And I would love to have more people a part of the conversation. 
If you don't have time to rate and review, you could always share the podcast on social media. That would be awesome too. Or you have friends and family like, hey, listen to this odd girl who talks about random conversations with pop culture. She doesn't really know what she's talking about, but that's cool. You should listen to her. <laughs> you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at at M and on Facebook as a bit of fun with Emily. Go have yourself a bit of fun today and I will see you next time.